You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. You've now tuned in to the Drawing Board Podcast, a powerful, thought-provoking discussion where we talk about family, relationships, ministry, community, and career. Let's see what exciting guests we have on our show today. Welcome to the Drawing Board Podcast. This is the founder and host, Andre Ebron. I am so excited to have you all with us tonight. Uh, Tonight is a very special night to me. Uh, It's not very often that I get a chance to have someone on the show who I've known uh, for 30 plus years almost. Uh, 30 plus years, this gentleman and I have been rocking. We've been friends, brothers. Uh, We are related. And uh, getting a chance to see the people I love do amazing things, impact lives, uh, things that have shaped their worldview, and I believe have something substantial to share with our audience tonight. As you know, we want to take some time and thank our sponsors, Ebron and Associates. It's a consulting firm where we consult, develop, and support personal, professional, and organizational transformation. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, The Viger Group, which is a full-service marketing firm that handles can handle all of your marketing needs. So make sure you look and check them out at thevigorgroup.com. Uh, they have been a supporter of the Drawing Board brand, particularly the Drawing Board Nation, our conference, uh, helping with some of our image and branding, our messaging. And so we want to take the time out to thank them for their continuous support. And now, without further ado, let me introduce my brother, introduce to some and present to others, my brother, Gregory Starks. Gregory Starks was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. As a youth, he participated in baseball and, and other various sports activities throughout the year. He was raised in church, Pilgrim Baptist Church to be exact, where he acted in plays and was a member of his church's choir. He had an affinity for creative writing and art and still enjoys to do them both. He graduated from Southside High School. Shout out to the archers out there. My mother, Jeanette Ebron, is an archer. Uh, He graduated from Southside and went on to attend college at Indiana University before completing a bachelor's degree in organizational leadership at Indiana Tech. His path would later lead him to pursue another bachelor's in accounting, and he is currently working towards a degree in software development. Gregory currently co-hosts the Sensible Politics podcast, The podcast format is two young men of differing personalities and perspectives discussing politics and topics such as as social and political significance in a spirited but respectful manner. Sensible politics shows that just because you disagree doesn't mean you can't find common ground and debate without demeaning one another. Welcome to the show, my brother, my friend, my cousin, Gregory Starks. Welcome, brother. Thank you. I thought I might need the temptations to come with me, man, with that introduction. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, man, (laughs) uh, just to kind of frame for everybody, when I say we've been knowing each other for 30 plus years, um, it feels funny to say that, uh, but it is very much so a reality, man. Um, Well, you know, we're still very young men. Uh, I got a little wisdom on my chin now, as you I, I, I see that, man. You got a little bit of salt and pepper going on, you know. Uh, <laughs> my kids keep messing with me because on my goatee, this side connects all the way. And I'm still waiting on this side. <laughs> yeah, still waiting yeah. to get that old man wisdom, get that beard connected. 
Right, right. That's what I'm working on. Working on. I got my I got my beer bomb and everything. <laughs> Keep pushing. Oh brushing. man, listen, listen. Uh, but man, we have uh seen each other through all phases of life. Uh we have been with each other playing baseball at village. Um, mm-hmm. you know, your mom was very instrumental uh in working, you know, all of the from the concession stands to helping out to uh Sylvia Page has definitely been a part of everybody's village baseball experience. Yep. She's yeah. around. She was there from uh from my beginning and she even stayed even after I was done. Yeah, what's funny, man, I remember going up to uh the counter, uh my Aunt Dorothy, Jeremy's mom, used to mm-hmm. work in the concession as well. I would go up there and order my suicide drink, you know. Yeah, <laughs> give me a suicide, you know. <laughs> Yeah. 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 No, I want. Uh, no, can I get a little bit more Dr. Pepper instead? <laughs> but you wouldn't be a suicide now. You got to drink water and organic stuff now. Oh, listen, suicide. man. That's a, that's a caffeine overdose. <laughs> hey, look, but as you know, for me, one of the things that I've been drinking since I was little, still working that's on it, man. Drinking that's my Pepsi. Yeah, I, I just put out there. Uh, starting in August, I want to do a thirty-day jump start to getting my health where it needs to be. Uh, I've, I've cut down on, so I don't eat uh, a lot of beef. I don't eat pork at all. I recently stopped eating chicken. Uh, so I'm um, turkey products, you know, seafood and things mm-hmm. of that nature. So I'm working on it, realizing, you know, in each, each phase of life, you have to adjust to be at your optimal level. But Absolutely. that, yeah, but that Pepsi has been there. So I got to do something about it. Yeah, um, you gotta have a, uh, I won't call it an addiction, but an affinity and a love and a, a loyalty to that product. Yeah. As you know, especially running a podcast, when you identify something and say you don't want to call it that, you essentially are naming it. And yeah, we don't want to call this an addiction, but. Yeah, we you know. we got to make it pretty. <laughs> right, right. No, call it what it is, man. Call it what it is. But uh, it's an addiction. <laughs> yeah, man, it's bad. It's real bad, especially when you have, uh, you know, co-workers and colleagues and students for your birthday bringing you uh little six packs of pepsi that's 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 pretty bad but yeah okay enough enough of my vices sorry enough of that that. Uh, man we have uh we went to cornerstone prep together uh for some of our middle school years um and i was up at Southside so much people thought that i actually went there for a minute yeah You were a constant. You were a constant up there. You should have been somewhere, but yeah, Yeah. we had a lot of fun. We did. We did, man. And then, uh, you know, come college, uh, you went to IU, uh, which gave us a reason to come down to IU for Little Five and the rest of those fun events. But Mm -hmm. we have definitely lived, you know, a a life where at all phases we stayed engaged uh, with one another, man, and just were there like, to give kind words, uh, to call it as it is. Uh, I think that's true brotherhood to be able to have some knockdown, drag out arguments, debates, you know, uh, to be able to call your, your brother on the carpet and tell him when he's wrong, uh, right. to be able to support and encourage him when he is right. And the, to be there the entire time, no matter, uh, how you may have felt. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of like parented each other because we're not going to have each other going out misrepresenting the rest of us because right. we all associate and you're guilty by association at all times. You know, even if you're not there, people know who you, who you with. So that's true. That's true. So yeah, man, um, 
it was funny. I tell, you know, through high school until what was that? I was 17. I didn't have a vehicle. And so uh, I was always needing a ride. Yeah. It was funny because that's one thing that you all made fun of me of. You said, Andre, I always need a ride. <laughs> <laughs> we had to fight over who was going to come to get you. Yeah, I knew you and Jeremy Thomason. No, I ain't going to get him. You go get him. <laughs> <laughs> and then that song, that song came out, Scrubs. I said, wait a minute. Now, everybody in the passenger side is not. <laughs> I'm not a scrub. I'm not no scrub. No, but. <laughs> Well, man, we have uh, we have enjoyed, uh, you know, just the phases, man, of growing up and have become productive citizens that are empowering other people to use their voice uh, for the good of the whole and uh, been willing. Actually, uh, we've always been uh, ones who weren't afraid to push against the fray, you know, ones mm-hmm. who were who were not afraid to challenge the system as is. Uh, status quo was always offensive. Uh, mediocrity. Uh, settling for the norm, like that was something that we always challenge. And, exactly. Uh, That's unacceptable. And I right. think I don't know if that comes from our upbringing, um, but we weren't just here just to be here. We, you know, we wanted to thrive. We wanted to be the ultimate. If we was going to do it, we wanted to be the best at it. And if we're not the best at it, we're going to work towards it. Absolutely. So, man, tell me, um, and I have, have a lot of inter- interesting questions, man, but like walk me through your process, bro. When you decided to uh, go to IU, uh, came back, finished at Indiana Tech, uh, what were some like? What was what was some of the process? What were some of the things that like helped you navigate those decisions, or 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 chose you, or made you decide the way you did? All right. Well, initially it started off. I think the way I was brought up, or the, or the way that we were raised, was that college was not something that was optional. You were going to graduate from high school, and you're going to go into college. It wasn't that you go to high school and then you figure it out. So we were young when we graduated. We were 17 years old. And I'll be honest, I did not have it all figured out. So initially, I wanted to go to uh, IU, uh, apply. Um, wasn't going to go at first. was going to stay at home, uh, go to IPFW or go to Fort Wayne, Purdue, they call it now. But I was going to go to home, stay at home, go to school there, then transfer the next year. My mom said, no, nah, if you're going to go, you go now. So, okay. So I go to IU and this is a culture shock for me because walking and not having transportation because freshmen couldn't bring their cars or at least right. you can bring it, but you have to park it off campus so you can't get to it. So that was very humbling to not have a ride anywhere, not be able to go where I want to and go back to being 14, 15 years old and be back on feet. Uh, it was a culture shock and to be around so many different people. Um, I ended up in a dormitory with a lot of, I'll say, interesting and eclectic individuals. Uh, we had a, a vegan cafeteria. And this is like 2000. People were talking about being vegan, vegetarian, stuff like that. So I had not adapted right. to living like that, you know. And then you're on your own. Um, so all the responsibility falls on you, which really wasn't a problem. I could still get up, go to class, go where I needed to take care of myself because I was always pretty independent. Even when I was really young, you know, I was making my own breakfast, making sure I go to school, making sure I make the bus and all that. So that wasn't much of a change. Um, I had a couple classes that I probably had no business being in. I think I got some guidance from the guidance counselors and they kind of gave you a generic blueprint. And what my issue was, well, maybe I'll say my challenge was I was in a couple of these classes and their instructors were all 
immigrant. So there's these strong Indian accents when you deal with in, the, in these computer classes in this computer field. They recommended I take these classes, but I couldn't understand what they were saying because I had never been around people with strong accents and have to decipher what a person's saying, you know, and, and be that patient. So I didn't do well in that class, and I had another class. Um, and this is a story I don't always tell, but I'll tell it. All right, so I had a class. It was like kind of like uh, get you ready for college type of class where they teach you different strategies and how to become a better student. But we had to do a group project. And as a part of the group project, you had to assess your classmates and your peers. So you had to say something positive. You also had to say something negative. I didn't even want to say the negative. So as a result, the negative all backfired on my group because they got tired of my negative, even though I gave them the positive, but my negative, they didn't want to hear the negative from me. So as a result, uh, my group went last. So we got the worst of the negative from everybody else. Okay. So, yeah, so that didn't go well. Um, they, I, I don't even think we passed. We did a great job, though. We did a great job on our project, but the criticism we got was so bad. And me having a, a temper at that time, I was still young, uh, I lashed back at everybody, at the whole class. Like, forget it. You know, it's like if you want to hold this grudge against me when I didn't even want to give the negative input, they held that grudge against me. As a result, my group did bad. I did bad in class. That got me out of IU because my grades were too bad. My mom said, nope, you're not doing well enough. Come back home. We're not going to be wasting money for you to be there. I ended up back in Fort Wayne. Um, now, the first few years, it was cool. Now, one thing I noticed was there was a high turnover rate in uh, Indiana, Fort Wayne. Many of the students of color uh, didn't last very long, maybe a year or two, and they were gone, doing something else. That attrition rate was was really terrible for, for me, you know, because I'm like, I want everybody to do well, and I want these people to be there with me, but it's like I'm here on my own. The same people you saw down that you used to hang out with last year aren't here the next semester. They all gone. Right. It eventually got to the point where I was too kind of too old to be there because it got to the point where since you don't have a lot of black students there, I had to be the black opinion. So I'm in a class only, I'm the African-American. Greg, what do black people think? I got that question one too many times. And so I ended up going to Indiana Tech where they had more diversity and they could, you know, they can understand a person's perspective. So I ended up finishing there. Um, and my story is kind of a reinvent yourself a lot because if you remember in the nineties, like I said earlier, you go to college, you get a job, you retire from a job, you have a family and all that. But when 2000 hit and, and the, the Bush economy, it kind of changed the world yeah. as we that knew was, it. That was no longer a viable option. And so right. the older millennials, you and I, um, that was the that was the pathway. The instruction was go to college. Once you graduate college, you're going to make a sustainable salary, uh, right. start your life. You're going to be established, uh, buy a home, get a family, you know, you're going to be set. When we graduated, the opportunities were scarce. Right. The debt was high. The world was changing. Uh, people had just, uh, you know, they were coming off of that Y2K 2000, trying to replenish things. There right. was, there was gross fear in the nation. And, uh, the um, Generation X and the baby boomers uh, were not favorable 
to sharing information uh, or opportunities with this new millennial generation? Right. So that was a struggle. Um, So I would have jobs. I couldn't find myself getting promoted despite, you know, my qualifications. Uh, I couldn't find myself getting put in a position where I could prosper. Um, So that was a challenge for a long, long time. So I was in jobs that I probably, you know, normally wouldn't think that I would be doing this. So I had to reinvent myself a lot. Um, I spent time as a salesman. Uh, As a salesman, that's where I met my co-host, Chris, for the uh, Sensible Politics podcast. We used to be appliance salesmen together. And you would not believe how many interesting conversations we have while we're waiting for a sale or for a customer to come in. Because, you know, you got dry spells that go for hours. We would have some really deep conversations. We thought, you know, it'd be a good idea. This is way later, though. We thought it'd be a good idea if we take these conversations and give them to the world. And so that's the inspiration behind uh, our, our politics podcast, because we talk about sports politics back then. Now we just do the politics because I think it's more necessary right now. And it's good that he has a totally different perspective than I have. And we bring something that's so different, because if you were to turn on CNN or Fox or MSNBC, it's fight, 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 argue, 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 it's yelling at each other. But we try to like, okay, I understand your point. I understand your perspective. This is my perspective. How do we come to agreement on what we do agree on? And then we find solutions. Right. No, I think I think that that's good uh, that you brought those conversations to the world, because the reality is just like technology impacts every industry, uh, politics. There are politics in everything that you do. Uh, And I find that for the most part, uh, particularly African-American men, that we are not taught the politics. Right. So even in even in disrupting systems, there are politics to disrupting the system. Uh, There are there's methods, there's ways uh, disrupting a system without a a solution is really Mm -hmm. just, you know, it's a, it's a detour back to what was. Right. Uh, you get signs like now. We'll get signs and symbols of equity, but no real sustainable change. Right. Uh, people will. I was telling somebody the other day, and, and I used this example, and I said, "Have you ever been having a conversation with someone, and you could care less about their point, or you can tell? I can tell when people are doing this, <laughs> where people are doing this with me." where I, I can look in their eyes and tell they are not engaged. Right. All of their mannerisms tell me that they're engaged. They, they wait, they, they get the rhythm of that person's speech. They know when, they know when to nod. When nod. <laughs> they, when, they know when to adjust their eyebrows. They know when right. to turn their head. They know all of the mannerisms that says, I'm paying attention to it, to what you're saying. And then they wait for you to, to conclude your point And they say, I totally understand where you're coming from. Right. When they didn't hear a word you said. When they haven't heard a word you said. And then they say, you know, thank you for sharing, uh, you know, your point of view with me. And I'll be sure that when we're getting ready to do this, we'll invite you to participate in, the, you know, in the conversation. Then right. you and I like back. that you mentioned that. I like right. that you mentioned that because I think over the last 30, 40 years, um, a lot of our protests and a lot of uh the things that we've made up, uproar about. We haven't been listened to. Uh, if you go back to the Colin Kaepernick kneeling thing, yes. you know, everybody says, I don't agree with Colin Kaepernick kneeling because it was disrespectful to the military. When the first thing he told you was, I'm not here to disrespect the military. 
and nobody's listening. Nobody's ever listening. Right. And here's the challenge, though, is that it is the way you interpret my action that makes it disrespect. Right. right. So mm-hmm. that is when, when someone expresses and, and we all have a responsibility where if our intent and our impact does not match, then what needs to happen is a healthy conversation so that a person's intent can be expressed. But when he took the knee, instead of people waiting for his explanation, they drew their conclusion, they took an action, they got rid of him, then they mm-hmm. then they wanted to understand, like, why did you do that? Right. And, and now here we are seven years later, and now we're listening. You know, like, why did it take you seven years to listen? But I think people have a short attention span, they want to hear what they want to hear. And that's unfortunate, because... If you don't listen to others, how do you, how do you progress as a society? If we really are a civilization of of needing one another, how can we progress if nobody's listening to each other? Right. Question. Now, th- there's a lot of talking happening. There's a whole lot of attention being given to uh, like the racial and social inequities. Uh, COVID nineteen has it has drawn everybody's attention. There's no way that you cannot address these things. So there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of talking happening. Do you feel like, though, at this moment that there that listening is taking place? Absolutely not. No, because if you have the the ideal that it offends me to have to wear a mask, that means you're not listening, that the mask isn't really about you. The mask is about protecting others and protecting everybody else around you. It's not necessarily for you. You do it. It's an inconvenience to protect other people. And that's what we should do as a society, have enough respect for one another that we go ahead and do that. So I think, yes, I mean, there is a a process of not listening when it comes to this COVID-19. But the thing that makes it so difficult is our is the bully pulpit tells you one thing. And I don't know what makes him credible to be listened to me personally, but because he contradicts himself so much. But people listen to that. They like it. He says what they want to hear. And then, you know, you end up sorry for it. And so, I mean, it'll probably be two, three years from now, we'll have lost lives and we'll have lost loved ones and people will be affected by this. And because nobody wanted to listen to eradicate this thing, or at least do our best to try to, I mean, we'll have lost because of it. Now, here's a question and uh, feel free, don't feel pressured to answer, but I just have a, uh, it's just a thought that I, I have a question as it relates to leadership. Uh, when it comes to like leading a nation or leading an organization and you have these responsibility and these objectives to move forward, to move the organization forward, because it's mm-hmm. a very real thing that's happening. There are businesses that are going uh, out of business because they're not able to generate enough capital uh, to be sustainable. Not everybody received uh, the grants or the loans from the SBA. Not everybody has been supported. So there are some leaders that are having to make tough decisions uh, amidst what's happening and the numbers are fluctuating and things are changing and there's so much uncertainty. How, what, what advice or what is your opinion as it relates to leaders that need to move the organizations forward, but they also need to exercise a degree of compassion, empathy, and responsibility to the people that are, are required to work within this or the term that people have been deemed uh, essential to be there. What do you think that? What do you think the, resp- the the responsibility is? What does the moral compass say? Well, the the thing that's unfortunate is that the the moral compass is temporary. 
as long as the the narrative is that everybody's sacrificing right now at this point, because when you look at uh, when everything first shut down, everybody was willing to shut their businesses down for a little bit. Everybody was willing to bring the kids home, relax, sit, be at home. Everybody's willing to do that. Now that the money isn't circulating into the businesses, now we get to the point where they're willing to sacrifice people for it. So the position of leadership has to be in this in this situation. Okay, so you've got I have a if you look at a corporation, I have a responsibility to the shareholder. I also have a responsibility to my employees. That's where the difficulty comes with leadership, is because who are you really beholden to? Are you beholden to humanity or are you beholden to the dollar? So now we've got a situation where a lot of businesses are not doing what's in the best interest of the employee and they're doing what's in the best interest of the dollar. What the only advice I could give is look to yourself and think if you were in that position. If you're in a position of a shareholder, you can stake to lose some money for a little while, six months even, you know, because most people are investing long term. If you if you need the, the stock to jump up immediately, you're talking about people who are gambling with it. In that instance, I mean, they're gambling. That that's their risk. But some people are just investing, you know, long term, long term. So 20, 30, 30 years from now, looking towards retirement. Right. Right. So I think they, you can make a sacrifice to the people who you're beholden to and make a sacrifice to the uh, the shareholder and still come out better. Well, let's 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 use particularly industry that directly impacts me. Let's talk about education. Right. So I was having, yeah, so I was having this conversation with someone. Again, the the thoughts and the ideas that are shared on, on this podcast are directly those associated with the Drawing Board Nation, the Drawing Board Podcast, Andre mm-hmm. Ebron, and no other organizations. Let me give, put that disclaimer out there. I was saying that every organization has to be considering what in their mind is an accept, acceptable casualty rate, Right. An acceptable casualty rate opening up knowing that people can be impacted and affected by this virus. Like it, it has it, it may be part of the equation. It's nothing that the organization will openly express, but there is there has to be a number. And although mm-hmm. you, we want the number to be absolutely zero based upon the actual numbers and w- whether it be a data driven decision that most likely there's a, a large probability that someone in that environment will be will have the virus, right? Yeah. Yes. Here's the challenge uh, for the educational environment is that when you talk about the casualty rate or casualty percentage, now we are talking about children. Mm-hmm. And who will openly say and know that when you're looking at a casualty percent, you're talking about a K through 12, a kindergartner a first or second grader, a third grader. And then the question is, whose child are we willing to put in that particular position? Uh, Are we talking about underserved communities? Are we talking about underrepresented communities, marginalized, minoritized communities? What decisions are being made uh, across other districts where people, you know, uh, their tax dollars may cause them to have a more affluent experience? Like Mm -hmm. education. And here's, 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 I want to throw this question out. I've been thinking about this all day. It's just, uh, and I'm an educator, okay? So there, I, I have answers. So 
so please, the listener, I ask you the question as well. Um, if your child does not go to school for nine months, what will they be missing? This is what the child will be missing. All right. The child will be missing uh, the opportunity to catch COVID-19. Okay. <laughs> not to, because, not to la- it's not laughable. I just... No, it, it's not funny, you know, right. but isn't that the main issue? It is. Is that we're trying to prevent our kids from getting sick. I mean, the experience, I think, uh, in this world we live in now, everything is more virtual. I think this is a great opportunity for kids to learn to how to interact with one another in, in this virtual concept because the world is big. You know, it, it's bigger than just Indiana. It's bigger than the Midwest. It's bigger than the United States. you got to be able to interact with people across the world, you know, in China, Japan, Europe, Africa. You have to be able to interact with those people. I think this is a great opportunity to get our kids prepared technologically for the future. What they'll actually miss is is uh, they don't miss the teacher interaction if you go with the virtual option because you can still interact with the teacher. So they don't lose that. They lose uh, recess, mm-hmm. which I mean, kids don't get out enough anyway. Maybe they need to go outside at home and figure out what their surroundings are. Get to know your neighborhood. If you got lost, how would you get home? Because most kids don't even understand directions. They don't even have a sense of direction because you can go to your phone and GPS everything. So I think it's a good opportunity for kids to explore. I think it's a good opportunity for people to engage. But this is the thing that I don't like. I don't think there's enough anger from the parents on on their end as as far as stopping these kids from having to go to school. Okay. As far as putting their children at risk. Well, you know that there have been um, special interest groups or advocacy organizations that have filed lawsuits. Um, Yeah, but the lawsuit was essentially demanding that uh, students be tested for COVID, not necessarily uh, that student that, you know, we cease and desist as it relates to going back to school. And let a result in two weeks. Well, give us a test. Right. I think they have it where it comes back sooner than that now. But here's okay. the, here's, yeah, here's the thing is that uh, no one has the real answer to this. Um, so no one has the real answer. And like we were saying, um, when we talk about our marginalized, minoritized communities, there's so much like school has become like the epicenter where a lot of the basic needs are being met also. Right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So this would be a great time. And I have seen uh, in Detroit, I've seen a lot of community organizations begin to buffer and fill that gap. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the partnerships and I'll shout a few of them out just because I know of the work that they've been doing. So like Gleaners, Gleaners has been doing an excellent job where they've been providing produce and other resources, uh, fresh vegetables and things of that nature for them. Uh, for families to come and get the resource. Here's the thing, though, uh, Starks, is they actually were doing that prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. And so they ramped up their resources to wow. increase. They and, had a black uh, mentality. Yeah. And then Forgotten Harvest. Forgotten Harvest, uh, I, with my fraternity brothers, I was just there last week, and we were packing boxes, um, you know, and those boxes we packed are going to be able to feed an estimated 1,500 people. So I, 
And here was the interesting thing is they had so many, so much more food to donate, mm -hmm. but the manpower to actually pack the boxes, they, they don't have enough manpower. So the food can go to waste. Well, yeah, I mean, they, you know, it's um, some non-perishables. So, mm -hmm. but it's just sitting in the warehouse, you yeah. know, needing to be packed because the National Guard, uh, initially they were doing that, but they've been deployed, um, you know, to go do whatever they've been ordered to do. And shout out to everybody that's in, yeah, in the armed forces. What do you think about this? What do you think about uh, Trump ordering uh, federal agents to some of these metropolitan areas. I'm I'm very suspicious of anything Donald Trump does, and mm -hmm. I'm very suspicious of his motives. Um, now Donald Trump set the uh, he set the foundation and the groundwork for this several years back. Um, I think it was even before he got elected. He said if they can't get Chicago straight, I'm going to send the military in there to, and I'm going to fix it. So this has been on his mind for a very long time. Um, He's never actually addressed issues as far as creating an infrastructure to reduce crime. He doesn't have a plan to reduce crime. His only thing is going there and, and, and beat people up. I don't like it one bit. And when, when the Chicago narrative always comes, Chicago is not even the worst when it comes to crime, murders or anything in America per capita. It's not even, it's, I don't even think it's top 10. But they always pick on Chicago because it has that that South Side of Chicago, it's very black. It has that kind of narrative that Fox News has always been pushing that we got to get them in order because they had 30 shootings today. You know, but we don't even know who's doing the shootings because the crimes don't get solved. So we don't actually know where everything's coming from. I find it very troubling that he's willing to uh, kind of wage war on his own people and go into areas like that because a lot of these issues, a lot of things that are that are going on in those metropolitan areas stems from poverty. And he, he doesn't have a, a plan to address poverty. He doesn't have a plan to address mental illness. He doesn't have a plan to uh, address PTSD. He doesn't have a, any, you know, he talks, I'm, I'm pro-military. But what happens when you send these military forces and these National Guards in there and they go to, to war with their own people? How do they come out after this? What do they become as a result of this, you know? How does this affect them later? They become police officers in some cases. And then we got the same issue of Black Lives Matter all over again. Yeah, I, I, I um, while I practice a bipartisan, you know, perspective, I'm on the side of what's right, you know, at all times. What's what is the right thing? Uh, what is the right thing to do as it relates to serving people? I'm an advocate for humanity. You with me, Starks? Did you freeze? Hello, hello. I froze up. You know? Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure you were still there. Um, okay. And so uh, it should it should catch up in real time and put us back on the same page. But what what I find troubling is uh, when we talk about eradicating poverty, uh, there are organizations whose entire lifeblood is built upon solving the impoverished issues. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if my funding source uh, that I'm receiving, and this is definitely uh, no diss to those that are out on the front lines doing the work. Uh, I understand. I've been a social worker, uh, humani humanitarian. I'm out there on the front lines with you. But when I understand that people's entire motive and their entire business model is centered, to, centered around 
solving the issues of the impoverished, how do we ever get to the core of eradicating poverty in supposedly what is supposed to be the richest nation in the world? Supposedly the richest nation in the world. Um, you know, even though we are, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. My screen isn't moving, so I didn't know if I was frozen up. Okay. Um, okay. Supposedly the richest nation in the world. Um, you, the, the hard part about eradicating poverty is that you have that calcification of wealth that's stuck up in that, that 1%, that 2% range. Those people hoard all the resources. They're hoarding all the money. Um, if you don't get to the point where you want to uh, reallocate resources or reallocate wealth, you can't address that issue. Um, I think you're always going to have a challenge when it comes when we've got this this hierarchy. We've got uh, it's basically oligarchy um, where you've got few people with a lot and you've got a whole lot of other people with a little. Most people don't have a lot of wealth to make it through the rest of the week, let alone two, three years from now. So I don't know that you can even address the, the wealth issue unless you're willing to be honest and say, hey, Jeff Bezos has got too much money. Uh, unless you're willing to say, hey, Bill Gates has got too much money and they got to filter it out. Um, in a lot of other nations, uh, they'll do certain things like they'll have ownership. The, uh, the employees will have ownership in the company and that can spread wealth out. If you look at like the NBA, the Major League Baseball, they, they share the wealth. So when the TV deals come in, they have a profit sharing system. A lot of other companies are doing profit sharing now. I think it has to be something in that, you know, in that nature. Uh, where you where you share the profits and eventually you can I don't like to use the word trickle, but eventually you can kind of disperse of the resources so that everybody can get another piece of it. But you definitely have to take some of that from the top because it's all so much there that there's not enough for the rest of us. Right. So I'm listening to you and I guess I want to get some clarity around it uh, because there is there are ideas because uh, what we're dealing with is a purely strictly capitalistic society where, you know, those are able to generate money based upon their access, their particular realm of influence, where they're engaging from, uh, their social circles. And we know that as it relates to the allocation of resources or sharing of wealth, that those circles are pretty tight and they only let in whom they want to let in. But are you suggesting that we begin to practice compassionate capitalism which sometimes also is, uh, you know, titled socialism. socialism. Yeah, socialism. <laughs> I like the way you call like it compassion capitalism. <laughs> I don't think yeah. there's anything as cap- compassionate capitalism in the system in which we reside. Uh, okay. The way you word it is awesome. That's beautiful. That's, that's a beautiful term. I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it. Um, I think well, that we're in a point where we need some socialism. We, we already live in a, a somewhat socialistic society. I'm not saying that everything should go all the way socialism. I'm saying that we already have Social Security. We already have Medicare. We already have Medicaid. We already have social uh, programs in place to prevent capitalism running amok. But yet people don't want to put more into it because they think it's given a free ride or something like that. But I think, yes, compassionate capitalism is necessary. And we can call it socialism, but I won't even go as far as call it socialism because that's when people stop listening. When you call it socialism, then it's talking communism. These, these are dirty words that have been ingrained in everybody's mind to think that these things are evil and these things are, are going to take away from hardworking people. No, it's not really like that. 
It's about making a blanket uh, where people can can fall safely, where you can fail, but you still don't have to worry about uh, whether your kids can eat or not, whether or not you can uh, find somewhere to, to have shelter from the cold. It's about being able to take risk and being able to go for and strive because that's what capitalism is supposed to be. But we live in a system where capitalism isn't fair for everybody. Because if you weren't already in, as you said, uh, it, it's hard to get in. If you're not already in, you're not likely to get in. And there's only so few spots. You know, it's like, you know, winning the lottery. Right. And so, you know, uh, when we ascribe to these different uh, curriculums or books or information they have out there about uh, building wealth, uh, acquiring wealth, uh, knowing how to take what you have and build upon it. Uh, rich dad, poor dad, some um, other different uh, principles that are given uh, as far as I'm trying to remember his name right now. I can't, can't remember his name. Oh, Dave Ramsey, where, mm-hmm. you know, he helps people eliminate debt, like all these different programs that are built. Uh, some of them are built upon scriptural principles uh, and scriptural principles as it relates to how the social economy should work is that is that really, really, um, um, Learning to learning tie, to tie uh, understanding, uh, understanding how God works, works uh, seed time, uh, harvest, harvest, reaping, some of these agricultural terms that are used with exactly what is being done with investments. But even knowing, like knowing the trends, having access to that information, teaching our children. Uh, with my son, man, it's hugely important. Like my son just turned thirteen, right? And uh, and in the Jewish community, uh, because. The young man has been taught so much uh, up until that age of 13 before he has his bar mitzvah. Uh, he's been taught the Torah. He understands now he's being launched into manhood. Preparation for manhood begins at childbirth, you know. Uh, right. But in our communities, uh, there we, we lack sometimes that ancestral rite of passage that demarcates for the child when a level of responsibility like home should be the fail safe, right? Mm-hmm. is that I can be able to make mistakes in the midst of the comfort of my own home. It should be the fail safe, but a lot of our children in, in our homes, it's not safe to fail. Uh, and you see the little semantics there, the wordplay there, but it is, it, it, it is not, when I'm in an environment where it is not safe for me to fail, then I'm encouraged to develop this certain level of grit, which sometimes at that point, when I reach a point of success, that uh, that societal societal positioning of obligatory return, uh, some of us don't do that. And scripture says that the strong should bear the infirmity of the weak, uh, meaning that that doesn't mean that the strong gives everything that he has, but that he uses his strength. And in that particular position, when they're talking about monetary, uses mm-hmm. his strength to build the weak up to a position of strength. But when the when sometimes the weak does not want to grasp hold to not introduce to or or lacks the dexterity to move from one realm to the next because we have been conditioned this way. How do you think we change that? Well, we we have about 13 minutes left. Huge question, uh, Starks. Okay. Okay. Some say that wealth is a conversation as well as poverty is a conversation. And we have to choose which conversation we want to participate in. How do we use politics to unify the nation? Is that possible? 
Wow, that's a hard question. I know. I, I've been thinking about this all day, man. I said you probably should have sent it to me earlier so I could get a little get a couple no, seconds. No, I, wa- I wanted your initial. I wanted your initial uh, just response to it, just in the moment. Like, how do we use politics, which is a lot of time the meeting place that governs uh, the the um, the general body's perspective of, and it shapes our worldview. Politics mm-hmm. is the, the battleground. Uh, that begins to make decisions for the people. So, mm-hmm. and that's in any industry. Politics is the place, and, and I'll just happen to say this: uh, what we see in the public, uh, and for those of us that have have reached a certain level of success, we know that whatever is conveyed to the public, there was a meeting before that meeting, and depending upon your level of influence, there's Another always meeting. a meeting before that meeting. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And and the and the message gets more diluted and further away from the truth each meeting that moves forward. So by the time we get ready to expose explain to the general body or to the public, the message has been so diluted that it's wow. not there to inform, it's only there to influence. Or even I, that it's been so diluted, it's been put into a way that you can absorb it so that we can get our agenda across. So to your point, the meeting before the meeting before the meeting. So yeah, everything is already decided. And I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but yes, everything is already decided. The decisions have already been made. So how do we convey our message to the people in a way that it agrees with whatever it is that that makes them tick? Um, Whether it be abortion, whether it be... uh, you know, those hot button issues that, that, that people feel, you know, so strongly about. Um, in order for us to come together with politics, we kind of yeah. have to divorce politics. The game of right versus left, the game of the conservatives versus the, uh, the liberals. We have to divorce that whole kind of thinking. We all have to say we're all individuals. We're conservative about some things. We're liberal about some things. Um, some things I, I, I feel very strongly about, some things I don't feel very strongly about. I think the only way we come together is when we divorce those those issues that really don't matter politically because they don't they don't get us forward. All they do is divide us. If you watch any presidential debate, they'll talk about the, these uh, certain issues. First thing they'll ask a Republican uh, presidential candidate, where do you stand on abortion? How does that bring us together or how does that divide us? That's right. going to divide us. That lets us know, because if you're pro-choice or if you're pro-abortion, we're not going to vote for you no matter what you you feel as far as everything else. You may have great ideas as far as everything else, but we already divided ourselves because we made that the litmus test. The same thing uh, on the Democratic side. Um, the litmus test uh, most recently, well, in the next election, probably litmus test is going to be uh, defund the police. Um, the litmus test is do black lives matter. You know, and that, those are divisive issues that we can't come together on. So I think we have to divorce ourselves of the right versus the left and really attack real issues that, that affect all of us, because we can always come together on certain things. I think we all we should all care about the safety of our children. Right. Whether they're your children or my children, I feel the same. You know, like I don't want anything to happen to that person child because I could imagine the pain that person has to go through. If something happens to their child, to be a parent and your child died, you know, 
I can't imagine, you know, the parent having to bear the child. Right. Right. And so I, mean, I think the things we can come together on. Right. You know what I think starts, and one of my my thing is, uh, and this is how I've always how I've always perceived it, is that when you fail to engage my humanity, you'll find reasons to justify your position. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because you don't want to acknowledge my humanity, you'll say you dislike me because of my race. Um, if people will fail to acknowledge other people's humanity. Uh, because they'll talk about other people's sexual orientation. Uh, people will fail to acknowledge people's humanity based upon their socioeconomic status. I, mm-hmm. uh, it, there are so many justifications that people use to try to make themselves feel superior to yeah. their counterparts. And when we get back to the baseline, and you know, for me and you being spiritual men, uh, is that God created us in his image and in his likeness. Now, we were created in his image and his likeness, but we must study to develop his character. And mm-hmm. that is where I think we miss it uh, as it relates to governing this nation, uh, because there, regardless to what it is about your religious beliefs, to engage a, p- a person on the basis of their humanity will cause you to govern yourself in a way to do what is in their best interest to make sure their basic needs are met and that they have equal opportunity to uh, to to develop or actualize their full potential. And right. those basic things and here I, I was listening to um I forget what I was listening to but they were saying that people always begin to seek power when they fail to love and when they and I'm not talking about like a mamsy pamsy, uh, one of the no, I'm talking about love becomes all things in order to satisfy the moment. So sometimes love shows up as a rebuke, a reproof, a correction. Other times love shows up as an empathetic gesture, uh, you know, uh, paying it forward, a random acts of kindness. Uh, mm-hmm. Love shows up in the form of structure, organization, discipline, those things. Yes. But whenever we fail to love, we will always seek power because we want to control what happens. Love says that I'm open to actualizing the best and I see the best in you. And if you're not producing your best, then I'm going to rush this correct and inform so that you can actualize your best. But if you're afraid of me being my best because you think I may accomplish something greater than you, then you'll refuse to love me. You'll subjugate and you will take my level of empowerment so that you yourself can be positioned higher than you are. Yeah, and I think that's the foundation of this Western civilization in which we live in, that you have to have somebody beneath you. Um, you probably studied psychology, the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But Absolutely. The Maslow's hierarchy of needs is always dependent on yourself. I need this, I need that, I need that. But what do we need as a community? It doesn't right. address the, your neighbor. At the end of the day, the, the highest point of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is being accepted by everybody else after you've been selfish, you know, and looking out for your own self-interest for five different levels. Then you get to the top. And that's, you know, when people accept you for being you. When at the end of the day, the, probably the lowest level is accepting others and accepting other people for who they are. Like, that's the lowest level of humanity. Yeah. So, you know, what's funny starts. And um, 
is that Dr. Underwood, he took that paradigm, he took that uh, Maslow's hierarchy and shifted the entire paradigm and says that he flipped it upside down and says that truly it begins with self-actualization and a man understanding who he is, how he has been created and how that impacts others. And then uh, he'll be he'll begin on that that uh, that ladder or uh, that triangle of, of actually, you know, engaging humanity. Right. But yeah. Flipping that paradigm. So, man, listen, I want I want we have man, this hour has gone by so fast, bro. But listen, I want you to give people your social media handles. Leave us with your lasting thought. And uh, we have to have you back on. Uh, so that you can begin to share more about, we didn't even really get to like sensible politics, but there yeah. we talked, we, we talked about we it. We talked about uh, politics. Bro. Yeah. But, but I want, uh, I want people to tune into your podcast. Uh, tell us where you are. How can they engage uh, your social media platforms? Okay. I'm available on all social media platforms under Gregory Starks, um, whether it be Facebook, um, whether it be Instagram, I don't really use Twitter. Um, that that's not my thing. Um, but the Sensible Politics podcast can be found on Stitcher and it's on Apple and on Podbean on all three of those platforms. And we also got some YouTube videos. You can look up Sensible Politics or Sensible Reactions. We do reactions to videos and reactions to other things. So, yeah, Sensible Politics, it's on Podbean, it's on uh, Stitcher and it's on Apple. Excellent. And what's your what's your uh, final thought? My final thought is um, always be transitioning yourself, always be reinventing yourself because we can always find things in ourself where we can improve. COVID-19 has showed us all that we have to be able to adapt because we are not living in the world today that we were living in this time last year. We always have to adapt and we always have to look towards our humanness first. But that's all I have to say. Oh man, that's excellent. And so the drawing board nation, we know, listen, that we desire and our core theme is to create an experience that will transform the world. Create an experience that will transform the world. How does it start? It starts first in your life. It starts in your life first. Create an experience that will transform your life first. Then create an experience that will transform your family's life, your friends. Then create an experience that will transform the organization that you are a part of those that get a chance to encounter you, then you create an experience that will transform your community, transform your, your, your region, your state. Tra- then it will transform this nation, thereby transforming the world. Right now, we're speaking to the world. An affirmation I always say is that I will speak on all seven continents, meaning that my foot will touch those continents and that I will carry this message without having to modify or manipulate it in order to access these platforms. I believe that the drawing board nation is getting ready to create and is creating an experience that will transform the world. But we first must realize that our future is not behind us. It is not before us. It is within us. And I'm Andre Ebron with my brother, Gregory Starks, saying, have a blessed evening. Appreciate it, Good Greg. Night. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir.